Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SRNA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Everything You Need to Know About Spasticity and How It's Treated. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast. SRNA, or the Siegel Rare Neuroimmune Association, is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at wearesrna.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the SRNA website and for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Our 2020 Ask the Expert podcast series is sponsored in part by Alexion and Genentech. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement is always at the forefront of their work. Also, founded more than 40 years ago, Genentech is a leading biotechnology company that discovers, develops, manufactures, commercializes medicines to treat patients with serious and life-threatening medical conditions. The company, a member of the Roche Group, has headquarters in South San Francisco, California. For additional information about the company, please visit gene.com. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Philippine Skabahug and Dr. Jacqueline Nicholas. Dr. Skabahug earned her Bachelor of Science in Physical Therapy at the University of the Philippines in 1994 and her medical degree at St. Luke's WHQ Memorial, Philippines in 2000. She completed a physical medicine and rehabilitation residency at the Philippine General Hospital in 2005. She was awarded a UN Merck Scholarship to pursue her postgraduate diploma in gerontology and geriatrics at the University of Malta in 2004. In 2009, she finished her internship in internal medicine at Atlantic Air Regional Medical Center in Atlantic City, New Jersey. She completed her second physical medicine and rehabilitation residency in 2012 at Johns Hopkins Hospital and a fellowship in spinal cord injury medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital or in the Kennedy Krieger Institute in 2013. Upon completion of her fellowship, Dr. Kabahu joined the International Center for Spinal Cord Injury as a full-time physician. She received her board certification in physical medicine and rehabilitation and in spinal cord injury medicine in 2013. She's the director of the musculoskeletal ultrasound unit at, at Kennedy Krieger Institute. She runs two MSKUS clinics at Kennedy Krieger Institute, a musculoskeletal diagnostic clinic and an ultrasound guided intrathecal pump access clinic. Dr. Kabahug is actively involved in medical education as a faculty clinical instructor with the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Jacqueline Nicholas is a board-certified clinical neuroimmunologist specializing in multiple sclerosis and spasticity. She received her undergraduate degree from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and her medical degree from the University of Toledo College of Medicine in Toledo, Ohio. Dr. Nicholas moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to train, to train at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where she completed an internship in internal medicine and a neurology residency, where she served as chief neurology resident. She continued her training at the Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, where she completed a fellowship in clinical neuroimmunology, multiple sclerosis, and spasticity. Additionally, Dr. Nicholas completed her Master of Public Health degree at the Ohio State University College of Public Health to enhance the quality of her research studies to advance the state of care for her patients. Dr. Nicholas actively leads several clinical trials to help discover even more advanced treatments to help patients with MS and other neuroimmunological diseases. 
She's board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She's a member of the American Academy of Neurology, the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers, and the National MS Society. Welcome and thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Gigi. Thank you. Um, so just to start, you know, just to kind of give an overview about what spasticity is and, and why it occurs, um, uh, Dr. Nicholas, would you mind just giving kind of an overview about, you know, what spasticity is and what uh, tone is? Sure. So spasticity is a common problem that can occur when somebody has any type of disease or damage in the brain or the spinal cord. So, you know, common reasons that we see this are things like transverse myelitis or uh, stroke or MS, um, cerebral palsy. There are lots of different causes. But basically, um, spasticity is described as an increase in muscle uh, tone with movement. So if um, somebody were to try to um, quickly move their leg out and they noticed that it was challenging or was, um, was stiff, but if they slowly moved their leg and it didn't feel stiff or they didn't have a catch when they were trying to move it, um, that's sort of the difference there with spasticity. There has to be some kind of component of movement. Um, in which the tone increases. And so tone is just sort of um, the, the feeling of your muscles that you have, you know, whether it's at rest or um, when your physician is checking it, they might just slowly kind of move your muscles and they can feel whether they feel tighter or looser or whether your tone is normal. But that spasticity component um, is really noticed more with action or movement. Um, but uh, they often go hand in hand that somebody can, you know, have a problem with increased tone as well as spasticity. Great, thank you so much. Um, and Dr. Kabahu, do you have anything to add? So um, aside from the uh, increased tone and resistance to movement, um, when you have spasticity, you could um, also experience the involuntary muscle spasms and sometimes some of these spasms can be painful for some of our patients. Also, and I don't know if you've, um, if some of our patients have experiences when they go to their doctors and the doctors check their reflexes with a hammer, um, it seems to be very, very hyperactive. Uh, one of my uh, running jokes with my patients, if I ask them if I have to step aside whenever I check the reflex underneath to avoid being hit by their legs kicking out. So it was one of the things that you can see when you have spasticity. Okay, great, thank you. And then um, what causes spasticity in these rare neuroimmune conditions like transverse myelitis or neuromyelitis optica? Um, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so anytime there's any kind of damage in the brain itself or within the spinal cord, we um, can have some overexcitation of our signaling in our nervous system. And so, of course, um, we're not supposed to have our muscles be so stiff that we can't move them or so that they're painful. But when we have that damage, the signals can get confused. So oftentimes when somebody, we have muscles that are called agonist and antagonist, and muscles have opposite actions. But the problem is, is when somebody has spasticity, let's say that they're trying to flex their arm to show off their bicep. Um, well, at the same time they're doing that, their tricep should relax. But those two muscles can actually fight each other when they're trying to move them. And so um, that's, you know, really the underlying 
reason why we get spasticity is this overexcitation. So everything that we try to do when we treat spasticity is try to calm that down. Um, and I think as we go through the talk tonight, we'll talk with you about um, reasons why spasticity can be beneficial, and then obviously reasons why it can be um, harmful or painful and annoying to people who have it. Great, thank you. And then why do some people uh, with these conditions have spasticity while others don't? Uh, Dr. Kabahu? It really depends on what is affected in their um, uh, spinal cord or in their brain for that uh, matter. Um, if um, when you say a person has an upper motor neuron lesion, that's when you have a spasticity. Though that involves your brain and your spinal cord, but when it affects um, the lower, when it affects the part of your spinal cord, it mainly controls. But this is mainly responsible for motor control. That's when you usually have your um, when you usually do not have spasticity or you have flaccid legs. Um, again, it's it's kind of like real estate location, location, location. So what part of your brain or spinal cord is injured determines it determines in part if you're going to develop spasticity or not. In a nutshell, basically. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and Dr. Nicholas, do we know why someone might have, you know, severe spasticity, or someone else might just have mild spasticity? Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's not a lot of clear information as to why that would happen, other than, again, you know, as we talked about in the last, um, when Dr. Uh, Philippines was speaking, um, you know, it, depending on the severity of the injury, depending on the degree that the brain and the spinal cord has been affected, that spasticity can be more severe um, versus more mild. And one of the things that I often see in my practice is that, you know, when somebody has that injury or that inflammation that can occur in the spinal cord of the brain early on, um, sometimes the spasticity is more mild and it's um, and it's not quite as bothersome for somebody. But as time goes on, that spasticity can increase and become very painful and uh, really limit function and movement. And so one of the things that, um, you know, is very important to understand if you have this is that doing um, daily stretching exercises is incredibly important, even if somebody has mild spasticity, um, to try to maintain that range of motion and to limit the worsening of it over time, because obviously we don't want somebody's muscles to become so tight that um, they don't move and then they develop contractures or inability to, um, you know, move the limb at all or to have a, a fist with their fingers flexed and clenched and to be stuck that way. So obviously, if it's more mild, sometimes things just like stretching or, um, you know, uh, oral pills might be very helpful to help to loosen it and staying well hydrated. But if somebody has more severe, um, you know, we'll talk tonight about all of the options for what we can do to help to reduce that. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and then, is there any benefit to spasticity, um, Dr. Cabajo? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I tell my patients that not all spasticity is bad. Um, in certain cases, we utilize spasticity to help trigger movement or to help support the limbs. Um, for example, I have patients who use their tone uh, to help them with their transfers or to help them trigger to be able to stand. Uh, it's not, 
if we if you take away all tone as a theoretical you won't be able to stand we need a little bit of tone in our lives the problem with when you have spasticity there is too much overactivity of your nervous system there there's too much tone um so when when we treat our patients we always go back to what our goal of treatment is is it for pain relief is it for to enable somebody to do their activities of daily living daily living easier um, is it to um, help them walk better? Once we've settled on that goal, then we can focus our treatment in addressing that. Um, if I just indiscriminately give you all medications to take away your spasticity, you would be even more unfunctional than having some spasticity. So there's, there always has to be a goal in mind and a balance in treatment. Great, thank you, that makes sense. Uh, Dr. Nicholas, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so I think that was that was really great. Um, one of the things that I sometimes tell my patients when they try to under, you know, think about that is, um, you know, think about if you had, if one of your legs um, was weak and you developed spasticity and that leg's so stiff, um, if you take away all that tone, if your leg was kind of like a cooked spaghetti noodle, you wouldn't be able to stand up very well or to um, to get around. And so, um, you know, as the other physician is mentioning on the line, if, if we take that all away, then um, we can take away a lot of function. But as, oftentimes, as we loosen, if we slowly try to loosen that spasticity, working with physical therapy can be incredibly beneficial to try to improve function once we've loosened the muscles um, a bit and sometimes we can slowly go back and forth to try to loosen and then strengthen depending on what um, the actual injury or underlying cause of the spasticity was. Great, thank you. Um, and then, you know, what what is, uh, so, you know, as part of spasticity, what is clonus, uh, Dr. Cabajo? So for me, the best, uh, the best uh, way I would, um, Describe clonus is when you um, when you stretch a tendon, you have those repetitive movements. Um, when I gave the lecture the last time, I think I had a video of what clonus is. So when you when we stretch your ankle, like we try to bring your ankle up, what happens is is that we trigger a reflex. But because of the injury to your um, central nervous system, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and that clonus it. Sometimes it just lasts for a few seconds and then it goes away. In other people, it is sustained. Um, the clonus can, and for those who still have the ability to walk, the clonus can, if, it, if the clonus is in the ankle, it can interfere with the safety in walking because imagine if you're walking and your ankles are flapping around, that's not safe. Some people have um, severe spasticity that sometimes I see the clonus even in the wrists and in the fingers. So basically, it's like a, it, it is a, a, a manifestation of spasticity, a hyperactive reflex, if to simply put it. So. Great, thank you. Um, and then we got a question about, you know, why when someone is first diagnosed, for example, with uh, transverse myelitis or something like acute flaccid myelitis, um, that they all, you know, often appear flaccid at the beginning or, you know, around their onset, um, but then go on later to develop spasticity. Uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so when somebody has an initial injury to the brain or the spinal cord, um, 
we often see um, uh, if there's weakness or complete weakness, we can see that the tone is completely decreased, and that's called um, being flaccid, um, where, again, it, the limb can just feel sort of like a cooked spaghetti noodle. Um, and that's, that's very common initially after spinal cord injury or an, um, some severe uh, transverse myelitis, NMO, um, stroke. And it's almost like uh, the nervous system, there's an acute shock where there's no ability for any signals to be traveling um, to allow you to move that limb. And so the tone can be very, very decreased. And then over time, as um, you know, the swelling goes down or there is potentially some repair, um, those signals can be mixed up because the damage um, that occurred is still there. And so um, slowly people can start to develop, develop spasticity following that initial injury, but that's actually the classic um, teaching in medical school for students um, that we see when somebody develops weakness from a brain or a spinal cord lesion or uh, damage of any cause, but um, the very early stage, it, we see decreased tone, but then over time we see that um, increase as they're is some repair or time where the um, connections are trying to be rebuilt. Okay, great, thank you. And then, you know, how long does it typically take after this sort of initial period for spasticity to, to develop if it's going to happen, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so it really depends. Um, so, you know, some people will actually develop it um, within the first couple of uh, weeks to months, and then some people will develop it um, as time goes on. It um, it really depends on the individual, but we can't, you know, we can see it early. And um, when we start to see that, we need to take action and start with those regular stretching exercises, oftentimes incorporating um, pills uh, that can help to reduce the muscle uh, stiffness and spasms. And, um, you know, if that's not beneficial enough, then there may be botulinum toxin injections that are done. And then for more severe spasticity, there are certainly more advanced causes like intrathecal backlift and pumps. But, um, you know, I have seen it happen to patients even within um, a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And then, um, why is it that someone might have spasticity only in their lower limbs, but not in their upper limbs, uh, Dr. Kabaho? Uh, again, it goes to um, how, where in your central nervous system have you been affected? How and how uh, significant um, has the has your spinal cord been involved? Basically, as I said earlier, it's it's, it's a, just a matter of um, where your lesions are when you had your TM. Okay, thank you. Um, and then moving on just to uh, talk about kind of the, the treatment options that are available and to go through kind of what's used at first and then you know, things that might be used later if those uh, first line treatments don't work. Um, you know, how, how is spasticity generally treated, um, you know, in, in, the, in the first place, uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so there are lots of options. And, um, you know, when, uh, when we see individuals who have spasticity, um, you know, each individual can be different. And so, um, you know, if somebody has more mild spasticity um, early on, then um, recommendations are going to include, you know, stretching, staying well hydrated, working with physical therapy, 
and oftentimes incorporating oral medication. So one of the most common medications that we use for spasticity is something called baclofen, um, which can help to relax the muscles. But one of the challenges is, is that it can often make you feel very sleepy. And as I'm sure you've experienced, if you've had transverse myelitis or um, any other neuroinflammatory disease, um, you've probably noticed that you feel sleepy already because you're working so much harder to do the things that you used to do prior to that damage. And so one of the challenges that we sometimes run into with those oral medications is that although we could increase and increase and increase the medication to where it finally makes an impact, some people say, hey, I'm so tired and I feel really confused um, by taking this medicine. And so that can definitely affect quality of life. And so um, if somebody isn't benefiting enough from the oral medication or they're having those side effects of feeling like they're having some memory problems or feeling too sleepy, then um, that would be the point where we would think of um, more uh, secondary options. So if somebody has what we call focal spasticity, so let's say the spasticity is localized more to um, a few muscles or maybe one or two limbs, um, then we would first consider uh, botulinum toxin injections. And so Botox is a medicine that um, interferes uh, between the communication between the nerve and the muscle. And so when you have spasticity, you have too much communication between um, your nerve and your muscle junction. And so um, the Botox um, would be given by a spasticity specialist who um, is able to find you know, the exact muscles that are causing that severe stiffness um, and uh, clean off the area of your skin, take a tiny needle and put it into that muscle. Oftentimes we use something called an EMG um, or an electromyography um, to help us make sure that we're in the right muscle and we can actually hear the spastic muscle to know that we're in the best part of the muscle. And then that Botox can be injected into a couple places in each of the muscles that are stiff and actually help to um, decrease that over communication so that they become looser. And when we give Botox, um, generally the benefits of the Botox, it takes about 10 days or so for the full effect to be noticed. And then it should last for about three months. Um, so when we give Botox, um, it can't be given any more frequently than every three months. Um, and so when people get that, we also incorporate stretching exercises and oftentimes physical therapy because if you get Botox and you're not doing those stretches, you're not going to see as much of a benefit. Now, if somebody doesn't have focal spasticity, meaning just limited to a few certain muscles or maybe um, a couple of limbs, and it's more extensive, so let's say that the spasticity is pretty severe in both the legs or it's very severe in multiple muscles of all the extremities, or maybe it's also in your, in your trunk or your back, um, you know, then we might consider uh, something called intrathecal baclofen, which, is, which means liquid baclofen that's administered to the spinal fluid. And so um, typically when we're thinking about that as an option, um, what we will do is uh, what's called a baclofen test dose. And so in my clinic, if we're thinking about that, somebody would come into the clinic and we would actually um, do a spinal tap. Um, so where a tiny needle is um, taken into the low back to give some numbing medicine and then we take a spinal needle and go through that numb area. And once we reach the spinal fluid, then I actually give um, some of that liquid baclofen. And then 
um, the individual is able to hang out in the clinic um, for the rest of the day. And myself, along with my physical therapist, will go in and we will move their muscles. And um, if they walk, we will ask them to walk and evaluate them to see if they had any loosening or not of their severe stiffness. And if they um, did have any loosening of that stiffness, then we know that it, that baclofen administered to the spinal fluid is an option for them. Now, of course, anybody that's ever had a spinal tap is not going to want to have repeat spinal taps every day. And unfortunately, when we do this test dose, that baclofen injected only lasts for um, that that day, and, it, and then it starts to wear off. And so um, there's a device called a baclofen pump, which sort of looks like a hockey puck, um, that can be placed into the low belly. Um, typically, there are other placements, but typically surgeons like to place them in the lower portion of the abdomen. And then there's a tiny little tube that this is all internal um, that would be placed in directly into the spinal fluid. So they typically make a tiny incision in the low belly and then a tiny incision in the low back and connect that tubing. And then the um, the hockey puck device, the baclofen pump, is full of baclofen. And so it has a computer chip that allows um, uh, your doctor to actually program a dose of how much baclofen you should receive. And that baclofen is given continuously um, at, a, at a rate into the spinal fluid. And so sometimes people will say, you know, well, this is great. I have this pump, but I notice that I have really severe spasticity every morning when I get up. And so we can actually ask somebody, you know, well, what time do you usually get up? And we might be able to um, program, you know, a slightly higher dose um, so that they will feel more loose in the morning when they have that severe spasticity, but then can receive a lower amount um, throughout the rest of the day when maybe it's not as severe. So it is a really neat device. It's not something that we jump to for everybody, but if somebody has really severe spasticity, that would be um, one of our uh, uh, desirable options. Um, it does require a lot of commitment and follow-up um, for the individual who has the spasticity and their family because we want to make sure to keep them safe and make sure that they don't run out of baclofen because if they didn't come back to follow-up visits, that could be um, life-threatening to withdraw from the baclofen. Um, and then there are other options, um, you know, if spasticity is more severe, um, like, uh, you know, surgical um, tendon release or even something called phenol injections, but those are more rarely used. Okay, great. Thank you. I think that was a, a really good overview of, you know, the different options and how one kind of might progress from, from one of the kind of first-line treatments to something like the baclofen pump if needed. Um, we also did get a question about uh, an SDR, selective dorsal rhizotomy. Um, and whether that's an approved or recommended treatment for children with TM or other rare neuroimmune disorders, uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so um, that's, uh, I might relay that question to our other speaker because I don't uh, take care of a lot of children with spasticity and it's not something that I've actually ever referred anyone for. So when you do a, a dorsal rhizotomy, it, it is really more an invasive procedure. You're intentionally damaging um, where the nerve enters and attaches to the spinal cord in order to decrease spasticity. It is, it is not, um, again, it is permanent, it is invasive, but I have taken care of children um, who 
uh, have had severe spasticity, not necessarily related to transverse myelitis, but through due to cerebral palsy. Um, years afterwards, even though they say this procedure is invasive and permanent, some of them develop spasticity again over time, and we really don't have an explanation for that. But as a rule, um, you have to have a really very good criteria to um, to be able to undergo this procedure. Not all not all institutions uh, do this procedure, so you have to go to a university hospital or any big any of the big hospitals uh, with neurosurgeons who are um, adept in doing this. Um, um, honestly, during my time here in the states, I have. Um, uh, only taken a few of these kids who had dorsal rhizotomy, and these were done like 10, 20 years ago. So that's one thing. Um, the One of the things I wanted to point out is um, if it is just the case of severe spasticity um, that has been refractory, in case, it's, I call this treatment as part of my bag of last resorts. You've basically failed oral therapy, You've uh, failed physical therapy, conservative, baclofen pump, um, and this is going to be um, one of those um, last um, uh, last treatment resorts to to do. Um, that being said, you have to really fit into this good criteria because you we are damaging a part of your central nervous system. You are cutting the dorsal or the nerve roots that enter your spinal cord from the back. The nerve roots that enter your spinal cord from the back are the ones that carry the sensory sensation, um, which is part of the reflex arc, which is hyperactive when you have spasticity. So the theory is if you do this, then we, you basically take out the input carrying uh, information to your spinal cord. But then again, it has to be a, a very clear criteria and not everyone will meet that criteria. Okay, thank you so much. Um, and then, uh, how would you treat spasticity in someone where there's varying degrees of spasticity in, you know, one limb versus another? Uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so that's a pretty common scenario that um, somebody may have, you know, more severe spasticity in one limb versus another. And I would approach that um, in the same way that we talked about um, earlier about how we think about spasticity treatment. So again, if somebody has you know, maybe more mild spasticity, let's say that they have spasticity in their arm and their leg, and maybe the leg spasticity is more mild, but the arm spasticity is more severe. Um, sometimes that individual um, may benefit enough from a very low dose of oral uh, pills uh, for spasticity. I know I mentioned baclofen earlier being a common one. There are certainly many other options. Um, uh, tizanidine is another common one that we use. Um, but if they benefited enough from a, a low dose of that for the leg, um, then uh, I may, let's say that they had more severe spasticity in their arm, then I may just do um, Botox in the muscles in the arm that's affected, but not um, need to really do that in the leg because they're benefiting enough either from you know, lifestyle modifications, like um, really good regular stretching ex and exercise program, um, or, you know, just a low dose of an oral antispasmodic. Um, but really, you know, we approach each patient, each patient um, that I see is different in their goals and their degree of spasticity and um, how much pain they experience from it or how much their function is affected. 
So a lot of times, um, you know, we will combine uh, treatment options for spasticity. So there are some people who may have really severe spasticity um, in their, you know, let's say their legs and their arms. And I know we talked about how we, you know, sort of reserve a baclofen pump um, with the baclofen into the spinal fluid for more severe spasticity. Sometimes people will get something like a baclofen pump and that will um, benefit them significantly. Um, but as um, was mentioned earlier, if we um, do that, sometimes that uh, the legs can, we can alleviate the spasticity in the legs, but they can start to become too weak if we keep increasing that dose of the baclofen when we're trying to get it to affect the arm as well, because it often helps best for the legs and it can help for the arms. But sometimes if we keep increasing that dose, we could make it too loose in the legs to where somebody loses the ability to walk um, uh, to try to help their arms. So we obviously don't want to do that if somebody is able to walk and we want to use that beneficial spasticity as was mentioned earlier. So we might um, use you know, a slightly lower dose so that we're giving good benefit to the legs but then come back in and use something like Botox injections for the arms. So there's all kinds of combinations that can be done. Um, and the bottom line is we don't want to overdo it to alleviate the spasticity so much that it makes someone weak, but to alleviate it enough that it provides comfort, but still allows for function if function is possible. All right, thank you. Um, we got a, a question where the, uh, this person had been diagnosed uh, 13 months ago with transverse myelitis, um, but their spasticity has been progressively getting worse in intensity and area, and now the whole their whole leg and mid-back to their toes are affected. Um, why does the spasticity increase uh, when the inflammation gets better in the spine? And you know, will this keep progressing to the point that they potentially lose mobility of their leg? Uh, Dr. Kabahog? Yeah. So um, going uh, going back to um, one of the questions earlier um, about when spasticity emerges. So usually within like, and then it could be variable, but as a rule, it, it, it first starts to occur within a few weeks to six months to a year. Um, over time, the spasticity normally increases and then it plateaus. There are many theories why um, why your spasticity increases over time. Uh, it could be because um, uh, it's part of the, the central nervous system attempt to regenerate, but these, this attempt to regenerate is not always perfect. I tell my patients, um, the receptors in your central nervous system become hyperactive because they've been cut off of, of the normal flow of information and your central nervous system as a, as a, as a result becomes hyperactive because your receptors um, are too sensitive. Um, that could happen over time. Sometimes specific nerve roots, when they branch out and try to grow out, uh, they're not always uh, doing the correct, they're not always relaying or processing the information correctly. Um, but then as I, going back to my first statement, as a rule, your spasticity can increase over time. But our expectation is that if you do not have anything acutely inflammatory or you're not sick going on, it should plateau. Spasticity is not always necessarily bad. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it can help you with your function. I like calling this as one of my early warning devices. Um, if you are sick, like if you have a UTI, or it could something be as stupid as a, an ingrown toenail, it can cause your body to become, um, to be too hyperactive or to increase your tone. That's what I mean by, um, 
spasticity being an early warning device. It can let you know that something is going on. Um, usually in the um, people that I see, the individuals I see who had um, some non-traumatic spinal cord um, disease or dysfunction and not just friends from transverse myelitis, if their tone has been stable over time and it is increasing, it's increasing from their baseline, it tells me to look for something. It could be as simple as a UTI. They could be backed up to do a fluid constipation. They could have a fracture that they weren't aware of, or it could be something else. And that's what I have to rule out for. I think one of the tips that I would tell our listeners is you have to know your body very well. If this is more than what your usual is, then please go and um, consult with your physician and have yourselves examined. That's all. Okay, thank you. And is there a period of time where where the spasticity should kind of plateau? Um, you know, after maybe there is not. Yeah, usually after a year or so. And again, it depends. Um, but in in what I usually see again within that first year, it starts. Um, uh, it, it it goes up, it ramps up, and after a year, so it should plateau over time. I'm not sure about Dr. Nicholas. What's your experience? Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with you that I generally see the most of what we're going to see at one year. Um, sometimes, you know, if somebody's not able to have that regular stretching, we can see it increase with time. But I completely agree that oftentimes when we're seeing that increased spasticity, it's because of some annoying stimulus on the body, like an infection or some other issue. Okay, thank you. Um, and then this other question, so this uh, person was hoping to get their baclofen pump removed. Um, it helps their spasticity a, a lot, but are, they're on a very low dosage now, only 20 micrograms, and are able to manage their spasticity as is. Uh, the neurosurgeon who will be removing it said that they normally keep the catheter in place because removing it can cause leakage of the spinal fluid. Is this a common practice when someone gets their uh, pump removed, uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so I think that that would definitely be a concern. If um, Obviously, if a catheter is, um, is in place, it has made a hole in the, um, the sac that uh, keeps your spinal fluid there surrounding the spinal cord. And so removing that could certainly um, temporarily cause a spinal uh, fluid leak. Um, I would say that I've seen um, both scenarios. So I've seen some surgeons um, remove the catheter along with the pump, and those patients, um, in my experience, have been fine. But I have seen some neurosurgeons um, leave that catheter just because of that concern. But I think that would probably be something that's best discussed with your particular surgeon and better understanding the percentage risk of that um, with removing that. Got it. Thank you. Um, and then uh, one of our listeners said that they had heard about epidur epidural stimulators helping restore function in people with spinal cord injuries. Um, has any of this kind of new research that's been coming out I've shown that they might help with spasticity as well. Uh, Dr. Kabaho? Um, I am currently not aware of um, anything related directly to spasticity in terms of epidural stimulators. I know that there are use of stimulators in terms of improving function, um, walking, uh, stimulate the bladder to contract. Um, honestly, I, I haven't heard of epidural stimulators for the spasticity, um, but other things that I am, other 
experimental and research modalities that are being used right now that I'm aware of are using transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, but then again, this is, I have to stress, this is uh, research and it's not going to be covered by insurance if um, somebody tries to get that done. It's quite expensive from um, what I've heard. Okay, thank you. Um, and Dr. Nicholas, you, you did talk a little bit about Botox being used, uh, you know, if someone has kind of specificity in one specific area or specific areas in their body. Um, if someone is going to get, uh, you know, Botox, you know, every three months, for example, for years and years, um, does, does everyone develop antibodies to Botox, making it less effective? Or is this something that, um, is this a treatment that someone can get for years and years and years and not have any issue with it not working anymore? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so it's definitely possible um, to develop antibodies to um, the Botox, um, but it is not extremely common. So, you know, I take care of many patients who've had the same type of botulinum toxin that we've used for years and they've done fine. And, you know, we inject it every, you know, three to four months. Um, and based on, you know, how long they receive the benefit and they've done very, very well. Um, but there certainly is, a, you know, there are sometimes the occasional individual who, you know, really seem to be achieving great benefit with the Botox injections. And then we start to notice that they're not getting as much benefit or they're feeling still very spastic despite the injections that they had received benefit over time. And so the good thing is if that happens, we can always switch to another formulation of the toxin and that often resolves the issue. So there are, um, you know, several different types of botulinum toxin that can be used. And, um, you know, I haven't had anybody who has had an issue where they've become immune to all types. Great, thank you. Um, and then uh, Dr. Kabahog, has, uh, do you have experience using um, you know, not the epidural stimulation, but electrical stimulation on, you know, the, the, the muscle, you know, via the skin uh, being used to treat spasticity at all? Yeah, so actually that's also part of our therapy program. So you could use functional electrical stimulation in your spastic muscles. It does offer some short-term effect um, in, in relieving and decreasing the spasticity. And actually this is very helpful, especially while you're, if you're doing this um, during your therapy sessions, because if we could get your tone to relax, then we could also be able to work, uh, you could also be able to work better with your physical therapy and, and doing the things you, you need to practice on or work on when you're in your therapy session. So yes, there is a use of electrical stimulation um, to decrease your spasticity. Um, still up to this time, they're still debating on how much, how long, how strong, the frequency, um, but that's something for uh, more for scientific physical therapy um, discussion. But it is, um, it is something that we do use for spasticity management, and I really find that as a helpful um, uh, modality when our patients are in therapy. Got it. Thank you. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Nicholas, how does how or, or does spasticity change the muscle or bone or ligament or uh, you know other structures over time? You know, if someone is experiencing spasticity. Sure. So with spasticity over time, um, if that muscle is um, so tight um, that it can't be activated or used. Um, sometimes that muscle can atrophy over time or start to shrink. Um, the other thing that we can see is 
um, actually our um, our bone strength relies on us being able to um, you know move our muscles. Um, that pulling of the muscle on the bones actually helps to maintain that bone strength over time. And so, um, if somebody is no longer able to move that limb or um, do activities or even bear weight on that limb then we can often find that the bones will become more thin over time. And certainly individuals with spasticity are more at risk with time for um, osteopenia, thinning of the bones or osteoporosis. And so that's definitely something that we have to think about and be mindful of. Um, the other thing is that if spasticity is not um, treated with a lot of the options that we've discussed tonight and it's severe, it can definitely cause those ligaments to shorten um, or become tight and people can develop contractures where they're basically fused um, and um, then somebody can no longer, you know, really move that limb. And so um, that's what we're trying to prevent with all of these things, because if it became to that severe point, really the only thing that could be done would be um, like a surgical um, tendon release. Um, so these are more um, long-term effects, but with, you know, good spasticity care, depending on what's appropriate and stretching and physical therapy, we can often help to minimize these problems over time. Great, thank you. Um, and we did get a few questions specifically about um, acupuncture and whether acupuncture has been uh, shown to be effective at all uh, with to treat spasticity. Uh, Dr. Kabaku, do you have any experience uh, with this? So um, in, in using acupuncture, so we have to, it depends on what type of acupuncture really. There's the, um, the traditional Eastern acupuncture, um, and then there's electroacupuncture. Um, it is an adjunct, but there's not necessarily any good evidence that it helps with spasticity. Now, if you're talking about something like electroacupuncture or dry needling, it can um, clinically help, again, it depends, help decrease the tone. But again, there's uh, so far there really hasn't been that good of an evidence regarding um, uh, use of acupuncture, dry needling, electroacupuncture. Okay, thank you. Um, and then uh, as a follow-up uh, to what we were talking about, about um, spasticity kind of changing over time, um, we got a question from someone listening uh, you know, at the moment saying, could you speak to those of us who have TM and mild spasticity in their legs only and a slow, steady recovery? Does spasticity also diminish over time for those of us that are recovering and will medications interfere with potential improvement? Uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so spasticity can definitely change over time. And so, um, you know, there are some individuals who initially have um, you know, spasticity following an acute neurologic uh, event like a transverse myelitis or a stroke where they do need some of these more advanced treatments like botulinum toxin injections, but with, um, you know, great uh, work in terms of, you know, doing the regular stretching exercises and working with physical therapy. Sometimes we do see that people can, um, you know, slowly decrease the amount of um, either Botox injections that they need or oral antispasmodics. Um, uh, and sometimes in, in some cases um, not require that anymore. I would say most of the time when it becomes so severe that somebody needs those injections or um, something more advanced, that would be um, more uncommon. But the place where I see that the most common would be in somebody who's had uh, an acute stroke. 
Um, the um, certainly, if somebody is uh, treating your spasticity um, and um, treating it to the point where the muscles are so loose that um, somebody is uh, just too weak to even be able to to work with therapy or to allow those muscles to function, that could interfere. But that's why um, spasticity experts are really working to control that spasticity to agree, a degree to which you're having some comfort and some uh, loosening so that you can then work with those rehab specialists to be able to try to regain some function. So I think unless somebody was completely knocking out your muscle function with you know, too much Botox or too high of a dose of intrathecal baclofen, um, I think that it would be very unlikely that they would be inhibiting um, your ability to have some recovery. Okay, thank you. Um, we had another question from someone who was diagnosed about 16 years ago. Um, the issue that they have most is at night or at bedtime, uh, or even after they've fallen asleep, their legs will twitch or spasm, either waking them or keeping them from getting a good quality sleep and rest. Um, how or what can I do to address this? I do not take anything prescribed for this. Would like to know what options are out there so that they could you know, chat with their provider about this. Uh, Dr. Kababu. Thank um, So usually with um, my patients, I review their medications. Um, one option would be uh, a low dose of, um, and if 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 it's the if it's a matter of waking up in the middle of the night, we could do just a low dose of oral baclofen, which I find it's uh, relatively it is safe for my patients to try. Um, Dr. Nicholas, what about you? What do you prescribe anything else? Yeah, so I agree with you. If um, you know, it sounds like this individual who has. Um, these challenges mostly at night, who doesn't take anything, oftentimes actually dosing any kind of oral muscle relaxer at nighttime to help to try to reduce that can be really beneficial. So baclofen is typically my first line to use for that. Um, if somebody felt like um, that wasn't helpful at the low dose that was started, you know, we certainly could increase that up over time. The beauty of taking it at night is that, you know, the main side effect of baclofen is that it's going to make you sleepy. So the great thing is if you're taking it at night and we slowly increase that over time to control those symptoms, then um, somebody shouldn't be feeling too tired in the morning. Sometimes there are some individuals who don't respond as well to baclofen for whatever reason. And so I do have patients that I use um, tizanidine on um, and that muscle relaxer um, can work very well for them. So you know, I think this type of um, spasticity is very, very common um, or where people will have some of these jerking movements or tightness or pain at night. That's probably one of the most common times that I hear my patients say they have the issue. And it usually does work really well to use one of these oral muscle relaxers. Thank you. Um, uh, this other, uh, we've got another question uh, from someone listening who said that they have had NMOSD since 1993. Uh, they're 72 years old and take baclofen four times a day. They stretch every day, but their walking ability is decreasing. Um, is someone like this might be a candidate for Botox injections, uh, Dr. Cabajo? Um, potentially, but I think the best thing is to uh, not seeing the patient. I think we should evaluate the patient, check the strength, balance, see what else is going on. 
um, I would, again, perhaps he, he just needs a, a, a course of aggressive or, or focused physical therapy um, to address any issues because um, we are dealing, um, he said, you said he's 72 years old, right? Yes. Is that correct? So I, I, I'm not pulling the HR, I'm just being realistic here. Everyone, everyone's bodies changes over time. As we grow older, we get slower. Um, eyesight is difficult. Balance is, is getting impaired. So as a physician, I need to take that into consideration. I'm not blaming everything on your spinal cord injury. I like to see people as a whole. And when we evaluate, evaluate your strength, your reflexes, your, your tone, your balance, we check the range of motion. Um, and then based on, on, on that evaluation and on your medicines and what you're taking, what you have not taken, then um, we could make a more appropriate decision to see if you would benefit um, from Botox. I'm, that's that's when going to be the, that's how I would approach it. It, it you know, Botox is, um, is, it may be totally appropriate for in this scenario, but um, you really have to be evaluated properly first or Great, thank you. Um, and then going back to you know the idea of spasticity changing over time, um, is it possible for spasticity to go away completely after one of these um, diagnoses, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so um, you know it just really depends on the severity of it. So I think if somebody has such severe spasticity that you know your elbows flex and stuck to your um, chest when you're trying to walk or just at all times even when seated. Um, and your leg is stiff and you've had this spasticity for years, that would be a scenario where unfortunately I would not expect um, that individual to be without spasticity um, in their lifetime. But certainly early on, um, you know, when we talked about how spasticity can, can be of varying degrees, I do see people who have very mild spasticity and then over time again with incorporating physical therapy and rehabilitation, um, and sometimes just low doses of oral medications can do really well and not have the issue. So it is um, very dependent on the degree of spasticity, but with more mild degrees, I have seen it um, improve and resolve. Okay, thank you. Um, and then uh, we did get asked what, you know, mentioned kind of a low dose of baclofen, um, what the, you know, potential dosages are for oral baclofen if this is kind of one of the main therapies that are, are used, uh, Dr. Cabajo? Yeah, so your baclofen, the lowest doses, so it can come in a 10 milligram or a 5 milligram tablet. Um, if, if, they, if the pharmacy doesn't have a 5 milligram tablet, you have a 10 milligram tablet can be scored and cut into half. Uh, if you look per FDA, the maximum total daily dose is eight, uh, total daily dose is 80 milligrams. Sometimes I have people who are at 100 milligrams. I would usually start at a 10 milligram tablet, and then depending on the person's age and other, you know, if has other comorbidities or if the patient is anxious about starting on a medication, I would usually start at 10 or, or 5 milligrams um, three times a day. I usually give my first dose at night. And I ask the patients to let me know how they feel in the morning, if they have any increased sedation, drowsiness, if they feel foggy, if they can't function. Um, I, in my practice, I'm probably a little bit more conservative um, when I start these medications. Um, I have the luxury of, of 
of seeing my patients uh, more frequently over a period of time. And, and this is something, medications like baclofen, I would prefer, especially if they are older um, individuals, I would start at a low dose and go slow on titrating upwards, monitoring for side effects. That's one of the rules that um, um, we as physicians would follow. I'm sure Dr. Uh, Nicholas does uh, the same thing. Um, so usually we would start three times a day. This, the, the smallest, the, the least tablets are either five milligrams or 10 milligrams. Most pharmacies would carry a 10 milligram tablets and you have a 20 milligram tablet. And we would do it three times a day. I would normally start it at night, check for any side effects, see if they can, if they can still function in the morning. So. Great, thank you. And as we're, you know, getting to the end of our time, I just wanted to open it up and see if there were, was anything, you know, else um, either of you wanted to to chat about that we didn't have a chance to talk about, you know, in, in relation to spasticity in these conditions. Uh, Dr. Nicholas? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is if you have spasticity and it's not being addressed, please bring it up with your physician. This is something that can significantly affect quality of life. And to be honest, as doctors, a lot of times um, we're not even trained on all the options to treat it. So I'm a neurologist by training and then um, did a neuroimmunology fellowship and then later a spasticity fellowship because I was so frustrated by the lack of um, training that I had in being able to help my patients who had severe spasticity because most neurologists only learn about the oral pills. Um, some of them have the skills to do Botox injections but they often don't know about the advanced options or where people can go to receive these options. So if you are you know, not getting care for your spasticity or you feel like um, it's not being adequately addressed, you know, I really urge you to advocate for yourself and talk to your doctor about it. Um, you can look at resources through the SRNA um, and they can help to connect you to experts um, like uh, Dr. Carbaugh or myself um, or anyone really across the country who can help you. And there's so much that can be done for it. So please don't lose hope and um, definitely continue to do the stretching exercises and physical therapy as your doctor recommends. Great, thank you. And Dr. Kabal, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, um, just to, um, uh, just to um, emphasize the, the point that Dr. Nicholas had brought up earlier, Again, it is very important that you uh, that um, individuals advocate for themselves and don't be afraid to talk to your doctors, um, especially if they have spasticity. I mentioned earlier um, in the podcast that um, we have to have a specific goal, uh, and that goal is and and uh, treatment of people with um, spasticity. It's very individualized. I find I've found over the years, I have patients who actually like the sensation of spasticity because it makes them feel that they have something down there and they don't want me to take it away. I have patients who, so that the spasticity is so severe that we really need to step in and do something about it. I think the important thing is um, to um, set a, a goal and to make the discussion of spasticity as part of your regular healthcare checkup with your physician. If you have spasticity, um, in my patients, every year we talk about, has it been stable? Is it getting worse? Is it helpful for you? Has it become disruptive? We review your medications. 
we review your therapy, if you need to come back to therapy. Um, also, one of the things, we, we don't have time to talk about this, but um, any of our female listeners out there who are of childbearing age and who are thinking of having children or on any of these oral medications, please, please discuss this um, with your doctors even before you get pregnant because some of these medications can um, affect your unborn fetus and can even be transposed to the breast milk. So um, if ever that, um, if, if ever any of our female listeners reach that point that they want to consider having a child, please mention this to your physician and we can make a plan. It's very important um, to find the right physician who is um, comfortable um, in treating spasticity. And as Dr. Nicholas says, like, um, take advantage of the SNRA website because um, we, they have the resources and uh, listing of physicians who are experts in managing spasticity. I think that's pretty much it from my side. <laughs> Unless there are any more further questions. Great. No, that's that's great. Thank you both so much for taking the time this evening to, to chat with us about spasticity. Um, you know, I think we, we got through a lot of the questions. Um, so yeah, thank you so much again for, for participating. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having thank you. us. Thanks for having us.